this morning we're going to, um, Lord willing, complete this final uh, text here of Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be going from verses 7 all the way through verse 18. Um, one thing I want to point out at the very beginning is that this is usually a text, and this is part of the text, that a lot of times we just skip over when we're reading. We skip over in study um, and, and preaching through different texts. This can easily be passed over. Why? Because it's a greeting or it's a closing and a salutation of sorts. Um, and there's just people that are mentioned. And what are you going to learn from people uh, just being mentioned? So this morning, I want us to kind of put aside any bit of that thinking, if that may be the case. We're going to look at certain people, absolutely. But I want us, as we look at this, not to have any sense of a character study of what are we going to, uh, how do we use this person as an example? How do we use this person as our model for how we should live because of what it is that they have done? But I want all of these things to, again, as every text and every uh, purpose of preaching, to show Christ as we look at these people and ask the simple question, why are they displaying these? These characteristics? Why are they mentioned? What is the point of these individuals, these circumstances being mentioned? And how do we see Christ in light of this? So we, we went from verses 1 through 6 in the past weeks. We, we spent a lot of time discussing prayer. And then we continue talking about our relationship with other people, especially those outside of the church context. Letting your speech be seasoned with salt, your speech being effective, showing the joy of the salvation that you have received. And I mentioned how it shouldn't be something that when we're engaging in evangelism, trying to show Christ to a person outside of the church community, we say, well, a lot of things changed for me uh, when, I, when I became a Christian. And then I got this other job, see, sneaking things in or just saying, well, you know, I guess you could say God has had a big impact on my life, but a lot of other things too. Being joyous about the salvation that you've received and said, this is the only reason that I have any joy in my life because everything else, as Paul would say, is dung, right? Doesn't matter. You have an incredible job. You've achieved incredible status. Your resume is great. Guess what? It is worth absolutely nothing. You cannot take any of that with you, and God is not impressed merely with the resume. So we went all the way through this, and again, we see him continuing to talk about the essential um, understanding of prayer. In verse 3, talking about, please be praying, one, for boldness, but also that God may open a door of utterance. Why? So that he could speak the gospel to a person. This is not just wandering about the day saying, well, if something happens, maybe I'll share Christ if God gives an opportunity. But pray that this would be the case. And again, I think many of us know by now, any opportunity is an opportunity, right? Any appointment is a divine appointment. Whatever the cliches are that we talk about in that context, those are absolutely true. You can always have a conversation with anybody. Um, I was just telling Gil Klassen how on the plane from Greensboro, North Carolina to Charlotte, um, I sat down next to a lady. She's um, in her 60s. I, I sat down, had to get in on the inside of her, which I felt bad about making her move. Um, but I sit down and she's like, oh, I feel like I'm flying with my grandson. All right, I don't know how old she is. I'll, I'm, maybe I'll take that. Maybe her grandson isn't 12. Come to find out he's 16, so I'll take that. <laughs> because that at least means she thought I was old enough to drive. And that, to me, wonders, okay? But I sit down, and I said, oh, that's good. Well, I mean, assuming that you like your grandson, then this will go really well. If you don't like him, this is going to be awkward. Come to find out she does love her grandson very much. Um, and usually on a plane, I'm not really wanting to talk with a ton of people. 
I just like my quiet space. Um, most of the flights, I actually had my whole row just to myself. It was incredible, okay? This whole conversation um, time was, was, we're in the air for about 30 minutes. If you know anything about how far Greensboro to Charlotte is, you get up, level out for half a second to make the pilot feel good, and you're coming right back down, right? Um, we wonderful conversation. She was talking a lot about family history, about struggles with her kids. Um, I was able, we talked a lot about different things and offered some advice in different ways. And she said, wow, it sounds like you really know a lot, like for your age, you seem really wise or really confident about these things. How is that possible? Now think about how I could respond to this. Well, I've just listened to a lot of good people. No, not really good. Um, but being able to say, well, actually, so in Colorado, I, I'm a pastor at a, a small church there, and, under, and everything that I've been saying, I'm, I'm stealing from the Bible, right? I'm smart enough to know stealing from the Bible is a very good way to go to give the appearance of wisdom, because that's where wisdom comes from. And she said, that makes so much sense as to why you, you seem so confident and all of these things, because come to find out she too is a Christian, and we are uh, able to rejoice in that conversation a lot. But understanding that those different things that we talk about, the, the understanding of, wow, that's really wise, particularly because of your age, and simply being able to say, look, I don't have any wisdom. This is just what the Bible says, because that's where we're only going to find any true wisdom. In different conversations, having opportunities to speak and to be able to share Christ, and what, an, what a joy it was to be able to, uh, to share that even with another believer and to enjoy that conversation. But we get all the way up to this point, and again, verses 7 through 18, there's a lot that's going to be in here, but we're going to move um, quickly and not belabor too much of just each individual person, but showing kind of the broad strokes of why it is that they would be mentioned. So we're seeing here, uh, starting in verse 9, um, before we get all the way in through the text because it's long, um, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll start off in verse 9. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Uh, thank you for the incredible... Um, refreshment and joy it is to be able to, to come and to open up your word and to study it uh, with, with other believers and to be able to, to, to praise you for who you are and just to, to do what it is that you've commanded of us here as we get together. Um, I ask that you would be with the rest of our worship as we study your word and that we would uh, be given ears to hear and that we would truly seek uh, to, to know you more this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we find in verse 7, this is where he has entered now again, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. He is now entering again into his greeting and kind of getting into the closing of this, where we're going to see different individuals mentioned. He starts off, verses 7 through 9, writing, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make their known unto you all things which are done here. Um, this morning, we're going to see something incredibly simple as one of these main points. It is important to have friends, companions, and helpers in ministry. This is not just if you are a pastor or just as an apostle like Paul. This is any believer. It is absolutely critical that you have friends, companions, and helpers in it. I've mentioned it numerous times over this study throughout Colossians that we are saved as individuals, yes, never to remain individual again. At the moment you come to Christ, the moment of salvation, you are 
infinitely and eternally joined to a body of believers called what? The church, right? I'm not going to ask you guys trick questions, I promise. I wouldn't do that to you guys publicly. Some of you I would, actually. Saved to something so much greater than yourself, not meant to remain an individual. This is why it's so critical to always be attached to a fellowship of believers, to be attached to the body, to be a part of a church, not always bouncing around from one to another, but to be connected to a fellowship, having community, not to simply sit back and say, I can be the church all by myself at home. It was never intended to be that way. Are you, are you not a Christian because you stayed home on a Sunday? Absolutely not. But intentionally withholding yourself from the community of a church is disobedience, very clearly. Forsaking the fellowship of the body, very much discouraged all throughout Hebrews and all throughout Scripture. Every single time that we see the church being mentioned, it's always done in the context of community. So many of us understand, and we've seen the fruits of this, of having friends, companions, helpers, not trying to go at it alone. At different times in our lives, some of us have probably withdrawn ourselves from the fellowship for maybe a month, two months, because of whatever may be going on. And a simple question would be, how did that month or two months go for you? I've mentioned it before. My freshman year of college, I thought, this is incredible. I get to set my own schedule. My parents aren't going to kind of make me go do things. I don't even have to go to... You have to go to class, guys. You have to go to class. It's required. Absolutely do it. I attended every class that year. Brittany, don't laugh. You weren't there. I thought this is great. I'm going to set my own schedule. And then I came to find out after staying up really late on Saturday nights playing Super Smash Brothers on the Nintendo, okay, studying. Um, I was a different person then, okay? Staying up so late and going, man, Sunday morning, I really don't want to get up early and go to church. This is my sleep-in day because I might accidentally go to class on Monday. So Sunday was going to be my day to rest. And I justified it in all sorts of ways. Well, I'm still a Christian, and I go to chapel uh, for school, so I don't really need to be a part of a church. And this isn't my home church, so is it really going to be that important? Um, you know, I go to a Christian school, so that's going to be a part of everything that we do. And, you know, God did rest, and this is going to be my day of rest. All the different things that some of you that are laughing at me have probably thought yourself at one given time. Okay? If not, well done. But these are the different things I'm going through because I said this is going to be great. Do you think that was a really good year for me spiritually? Absolutely not. One of the worst I had ever had. Because I had zero connection to the church. Did I still have a Bible? Absolutely. Could I still pray? Absolutely. But there is something so corporate within the context of salvation that you absolutely cannot escape. There's a reason that we're meant to be together. God is the one who built the church, who has founded it, and who continues to sustain it. And he says, be in community. Why would we ever think that we should remove ourselves from it and that's going to be more effective? That's not even totally part of the sermon, but there you go. It's important to be together. It's important to have friends, to have helpers. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and so does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. Quite simply, men help other men. Women help other women. We're supposed to be there for one another. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. So two can work harder and they can earn more than the one. Continues on saying, If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. This is, happens way too often that, that people, we tend to seclude ourselves. We withdraw 
things go poorly, we fall down and we're looking around saying, man, I wish I could be picked up, but there's no one there. And some of us have been in those situations. Others of us have fallen down and said, man, I got all these hands fighting, hitting each other, trying to pick me up. Everybody is wanting to pick me up and help me here. And what a joy it is to have so many people willing to help and to reach out and to engage in that community. And I just want to point out, given some cultural context of our, uh, the state of, of things today, is that these two passages here are Old Testament, but yet still incredibly uh, reliable and applicable today. Uh, there's been a big movement towards Old Testament not being relevant for the church today. And good luck telling God that. Um, I'm not going to elaborate there. Old Testament, still useful for the church, still necessary. From the beginning of Saul's ministry, who we know to be Paul, he had never spent any other part of his ministry alone. Do you always notice this? He's always with somebody. He's always saying, hey, by the way, as I'm writing this, this guy's with me. Or this, these other people are with me. All these people, he's never traveling alone. He's traveling in groups. He always had companions. He was always discipling another person. The only time that we see him alone in the entire book of Acts is when he's in Athens waiting for what? For his friends to get there. He's standing and he's going, I'm alone. I don't like this. So I'm going to stand here and wait for my friends to arrive. Because he knew he was not meant to be doing things alone. Paul is writing this letter again while he's in prison, as he did many of his letters. And it's important to maintain the understanding that coming and visiting an individual who is jailed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, to come and to visit them, is also very, very dangerous, as it says, one, you share in that fellowship, you share in that understanding, and you too could be arrested for such a thing. Um, when I realized this, it changed so much of, the, of the, these prison epistles of people coming in and sitting and spending time with Paul. And I used to think, well, yeah, your, your friend's in trouble. You're going to go sit with them and see them. But imagine what it is that this is showing. The, there, we're, many of us are familiar with um, the pastor that's been jailed in Turkey. Um, some of you guys are probably tracking a lot of that. Um, how dangerous it is going to be knowing a pastor in your fellowship or who you have relationship with, a fellow believer is jailed in Turkey for doing what? For preaching, essentially for being a Christian. You are going to go visit him in prison to offer him encouragement. Guess what? You're probably going to be sitting right next to him the moment you get there. And I didn't truly understand the context of this for so long when it was in this person came to greet me. This person came to give me food. This is how you lived back then. You had to be brought food to live. This was incredibly dangerous context. You were not going to survive if your church, your fellowship, other believers did not support you. And they did so at the risk of their own lives. Incredibly dangerous context here. But we're going to see individuals who are so committed to Paul, so committed to Christ in the ministry, that they were willing to forego even their own comforts. Here in verse 7, we see at the beginning, all my state shall Tychicus. We see this individual. His name means fortuitous or fortunate. Uh, we meet him in Acts chapter 20. Paul is on his third missionary journey collecting money for the major churches in Macedonia. Paul was an incredible fundraiser. He was very effective at raising funds for the church. But he wasn't just concerned with raising money. After he's collected the money, he's going to head back and he says, Hey, I'm to minister to both Jew and Gentile. I'm going to bring some Gentiles back with me. Because once again, Paul's not doing this on his own. Paul is going with friends, returning with friends. So rather than just bringing back money, he brings back some Gentiles, one of which was Tychicus. 
We know from other texts and various passages that he was a loyal man. He was a servant of the Lord and loyal to Paul. Notice here, Paul calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a diakonos, a servant. He was serving the Lord and a fellow servant in the Lord, but he was not a servant to Paul, but to the Lord, but he was loyal to Paul. We see incredible loyalty on his place. In Titus chapter 3, uh, Paul sends Tychicus to replace Titus. Why? Because Titus was supposed to be getting his butt over there to see Paul. And Paul says, Titus, you're not going to leave your church and just completely abandon him. Someone will come in your stead. I am sending someone I trust. I am sending Tychicus. He will take care of things until you can return. So we see this as a person essentially as an interim pastor way back in the beginning. We, we see this model of him going and taking care of the church while Titus was gone. This is the man who carried not only this letter as he's sending him, carrying this letter to the church in Colossae, but it would also be shared with the church in Laodicea and Aeropolis. You could argue based on other passages that he also carried this letter to the Ephesians as well as Philemon. There's so much here that this person who we don't have really any words, hey, you're seeing him say anything, we see that he's a loyal servant of the gospel, faithful friend to Paul, was trusted. And now imagine being entrusted with carrying these three letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. Being that individual who has to carry these things to these different churches and to these places. At the time, what was he doing? Just carrying a letter for a friend. Going to help out. This would be the same as if any of us were to write letters, except why do we know it's not the same? Because this is the inspired text of Scripture that was going to be passed on. He was very clearly a trusted associate. And it says he's coming to them as a faithful servant to know their state and to comfort them. Paul has sent him along the way with these things. And this isn't comforting in the sense that he's merely going to go and ask if everybody is okay. Hey, are you guys okay? Cool, glad you're okay. I'm going to go tell Paul you're fine. How is he going to comfort them? By actually giving them this letter by giving them the words that Paul has been given by the Spirit, the encouragement that comes with the reading and the hearing of the Word. This is how Tychicus is going to encourage and to be able to comfort these people. He is sent for the same purpose that he might know your state and comfort your hearts. In verse 9, we see another familiar character, if you're familiar with the book of Philemon, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Onesimus is the slave that we find in the book of Philemon who was run away. He wasn't really thrilled with his job being a slave. They didn't really enjoy anything that he was doing. And like any, any slave that's upset, they ran off. Anybody know what the punishment for running away as a slave was back then? Yes, off with your head, right? Execution, death. This was not... Now, Onesimus, we, we've dealt with this issue before. We've told you not to do this. You know, we're going to lower the rations or we're going to do whatever this case may be. It was absolute death. Take a moment, flip over to the book of Philemon. I just want to look at a few of these verses here. Um, the reason you can do this is because the book is so short. It's easy to walk through and see. But here we see Paul writing this letter. Again, Tychicus is going to carry this to, the, to Philemon and into this house. Paul is interceding by writing to him, telling him to receive Onesimus as a brother and no longer as a slave. 
Starting in verse 10 of Philemon, he says, I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel, but without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, and how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. I absolutely love the language of Paul, the way that he speaks about Onesimus, the way that he's writing to Philemon, and the constant unity of the language that he uses. Everything is collective here. This isn't just, well, receive him, but he's tying it all back to himself. Why? There's a relationship that now exists that did not always exist between Paul and Onesimus. Look, I didn't even know this guy. He ran away from you. I understand that, but guess what? While he was with me, he received Christ. So now he's no longer a slave. Receive him, therefore, as a beloved brother. Oh, and by the way, in case he's ever wronged you or owes you anything, you can put that on my account. I mean, what is it that we're seeing here? Is a perfect and a wonderful, beautiful picture of the relationship that is fostered because of the like faith, this fellowship that believers have with one another, and Paul, again, this true love of self-sacrifice saying, hey, the needs of Onesimus are far greater than my own. I'm willing to pay whatever it is that he has done in wronging you. Because of, he's so, you could see as he writes this, he is in such joy over the receipt of salvation that Onesimus has just taken. And in verse 19, I love this, because again, snarky Paul a little bit. I like this. At the end when he's saying, um, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. This is Paul reminding Philemon, hey, by the way, if you don't recall, I too was the one that was instrumental and played a role in you coming to faith as well. The relationship that, that Paul and Philemon had was one where Paul would minister to Philemon and coming to salvation as a result of that testimony and of that ministry. So again, at this time, slaves are supposed to be executed, not welcomed into one's house as a brother. We see this so many different times, but here, Paul is interceding for Onesimus and saying, Philemon, I know what has happened. Receive him as a brother. This is forgiveness. This is being restored in fellowship. This is a true illustration of Paul's ministry showing that those who are in Christ are a new creation saying, Onesimus is coming back to you, and he is not even close to what he was when he left. Yes, he ran away for a season, but guess what? Now he is going to return to you for what? Forever. This is an incredible illustration of how things that have happened in the past can stay in the past, right? How salvation completely changes a person. And yes, what you were in the past is no longer who you are. This is why it's so important to remind everybody in our conversation, new creation. Not just cleaned up a little bit. You've come to Christ, guess what? New creation, that person in the past, 
that person is dead. Dead. What do dead people do? Nothing, right? We, you guys are going to get in there soon. It's so important that we understand what's going on here. So we see this example of Tychicus, of a faithful servant. We see Onesimus, of a person truly redeemed, truly restored. Why? Because now he is a Christian. They have this Ephesians 4 unity that we've looked at in the past. One faith, one gospel, one baptism, all of these different things. So now, I don't care that he's wronged you. I don't care how much of the, the issues he has caused you. You're to receive him as a brother. Now, do you think Philemon is going to sit here and go, well, Paul, you don't understand. Uh, he ran away, and he was one of my best slaves, and he owes me all of these things. Do you think Philemon is going to call in the debt that maybe Onesimus had accrued? It is the true Christian response within this context to be, okay, well, Paul said he can put it on his account. Paul's got a huge account, so we're going to go ahead and send him the bill. No. The point here is forgiveness, completely and totally. It's restoration, completely and totally. Yeah, you've been incredibly wrong by him in the past, but guess what? That's the story of salvation, isn't it? Sinful man reconciled to perfect and holy God. Him, Christ paying a debt that you absolutely could not owe, charging it onto his account because guess what? Yours was bankrupt. This is an incredible picture here. So when we see the story of Philemon, don't say, wow, Philemon's awesome. Paul's awesome. Wow, awesome Onesimus. This is an exact story of how, what salvation is here. This isn't to uplift Paul. This is to say, this is what Christ has done for you in salvation and redemption and restoring you to himself. Next person. Starting at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come to you, receive him. Aristarchus was a man who went everywhere with Paul here. Paul is qualifying him as a fellow prisoner simply because he would go everywhere that Paul would go. You're familiar with the life and ministry of Paul? Really good at getting locked up in jail. He was very good at being in prison. Like, the, one of the best at it. Aristarchus was not someone who had done things that were wrong. He personally was not um, arrested in any of these contexts. You don't see much of this at all. Uh, so why is he a fellow prisoner? Because, hey, while I'm in prison, for some reason, this guy shows up, he's in prison with me. Now imagine, we're going to go back to this understanding of the, the pastor in Turkey, just because it's a current event. We like current events. You are joined with him. You are in ministry with him. He is arrested for being a Christian. This is saying, hey, I'm going to go in jail with him, and we're just going to minister there together. I don't need to be out here with all these comforts and different things. I'm just going to be wherever he goes. That is where I am going to go. He's in jail. I'm going to be in the same cell. He's ministering to those in that Turkish prison. Not a great place. I, too, am going to minister to those in the Turkish prison. This is an incredible, loyal individual committed to aiding Paul in ministry. He likely came from Thessalonica. He ministered with Paul for the three years in Ephesus, which was not an easy ministry, by the way. In Acts 27, we see him as Paul is on a boat heading to trial in Rome, Aristarchus is going with him. This is incredible loyalty that we see here. Imagine the most loyal person that you have ever had in your life, that when things were great and when things were as poor as they have absolutely ever been, right by your side, never wavering. That's who this person was for Paul. Showing forth commitment, showing faithfulness, showing loyalty, even when circumstances aren't good. This is the character that he is reflecting. Again, remember how I started off saying this is not to uplift any of these individuals. 
to make them the, the goal or the object of what we're learning here. We're seeing faithfulness on the part of Aristarchus, even when things are bad. We're seeing commitment on his part. We're seeing Onesimus. We're seeing Tychicus. All of these things reflecting qualities of Christ because of the salvation they've received. Then we get to one of my favorites, Marcus, also known as John Mark. If you haven't studied John Mark too much, and we're not going to do all of it, obviously, this morning, I'd encourage you to do that. He is an incredibly fascinating individual. There's not a ton that, you can, that you're going to learn, but what you do is going to be incredibly exciting. We meet him in Acts chapter 13. You don't need to turn there. Uh, but in verse 5, he's being brought, going to be brought to them and Barnabas and Paul, and they're excited, saying, hey, bring me this guy. It's a young guy, seems really excited, all these things, it's going to be really, really good. Guess what? Things didn't go well. Some danger's coming. They're about to travel, a very dangerous travel, robbers, all these situations are going up. And this guy who was brought in to be a wonderful minister, John Mark, says, oh, I don't really like the consequences that may come. I'm going to, I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere else. And he flees. Paul, if you're familiar with the context of all of this, in verse 13 we see him leaving. Paul was not exactly enamored with this decision of John Mark. Later on, Barnabas is trying to return uh, John Mark and say, hey, we should bring him back. And Paul says, I don't want him back. He, he left last time. I don't, I don't want to be a part of this again. That guy, the one who fleed when things are going to get rough, we don't need him. And here we see why Barnabas is, is family with John Mark. But here in verse 11... We see a little bit about him as well as uh, the, this next individual we're going to see. But it calls him a comfort to Paul. And, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who, who are of the circumcision, meaning that they're Jews, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. So Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus Justice, who we're going to talk about here in, briefly in just a moment, these are like the only Jews that ever were a comfort or truly came to Christ and ministered with Paul, as so much of it was Gentiles. But here John Mark has left and abandoned them. Barnabas is his advocate saying, no, Paul, I know that what he did before, but we need to bring him back. We need to return him back and we need to engage and allow him to minister. Later on, we'd find that he would be restored and the church had passed around this message that, hey, you guys all know about John Mark and everyone's grumbling. Yeah, we know about him. He left when things got rough. Well, when he comes back, you are to do what? To receive him as a brother. Very similar to what we see in the person of Onesimus with, with this relationship. He's mentioned at the close of Philemon with Aristarchus, who we just saw, and then with Demas, who we're going to see in a moment. John Mark had abandoned Paul. Barnabas is trying to be his advocate. So what changed for John Mark? He met Peter. And Peter was really good at understanding what it's like to mess up, right? Hey, John Mark, what's going on? I thought you were going to be with Paul. Yeah, about that. So I left. Hey, I've done dumb things too. I don't know if you've heard about the dumb things I've done. I'm Peter. Um, just, I mean, this is, it's so beautiful seeing these different things. Yet Peter is able to minister to John Mark, restoring them and all of these different things. How incredible it is. And Peter being instrumental in bringing Mark back. The same Mark who would later write one of the four Gospels. I mean, you want to talk about restoration complete and full and, and the testimony of God's working in all of these things? Imagine that. The same person who had just abandoned this ministry, now years later, is going to write one of the four Gospels, being one of the only four to write that. How incredible that is. And guess what? For Paul, 
He was probably hurt saying, man, I can't get through to this guy. I don't know. I'm bitter. I don't know what to do with this. Peter comes along. Yet another reminder that you do not always have to be the only person that can be effective in, in engaging with another person. Sometimes it's not going to be you. Sometimes you're laying the groundwork and you may never even know the conclusion. But you're to be content with that. Because he leaves. Paul probably felt like a failure. Peter picked up right where he had left off and look at the restoration that happened. It's not always going to be you. You may not even always know the result. So here we see all these different people, and then we get into, or actually real quick, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, just again, completing, kind of tying the bow here with Paul and John Mark and this, uh, what could have been very contentious. Coming to the end of, end of his life, Paul tells Luke, and Luke is the only one with him at this time, coming to the end of his life, he tells Luke, when you come, bring Mark, for he is profitable to me. So the same person who years before said, I don't even want him to come back, he left. He abandoned us. We don't need that. We're moving on. Is now coming to the end of his life and saying, hey, Luke, I want you to bring Mark because he is profitable. This is absolute, complete, and true restoration. This is not harboring uh, bitterness and holding on to it so long. Complete forgiveness even when personally wronged. And again, same as we saw in Philemon. You've been wronged. Guess what? Forgive. You've been forgiven of something far, far greater. Why could you not forgive someone that may have abandoned you one time? Imagine if your salvation, your forgiveness for all eternity was based upon you never one time in your life abandoning God. I mean, and that's something all of us to rejoice in. Again, God is faithful even when we are faithless. Then we see this la- one of the last people here, Jesus Justice, not too much of information about him. Um, but here we see his name also being Jesus, which is called justice or meaning righteous here so that people didn't get confused here and think this is like a, a footnote of Jesus here. Kind of weird. Um, but imagine your name being Jesus Justice. This to me sounds like an awesome superhero name, just as a side note that I thought about a lot these past couple of weeks. So any of you want to help me with creating that story, let me know. He's one of the Jewish workers and a fellow brother in Christ. Quite simply, he was faithful again as a servant. He was committed and was a fellow worker under the kingdom of God who was a comfort to Paul. Verses 12 and 13, again, we're going to move really quickly through these last verses. We see Epaphras again. We talked a lot about him in chapter 1. I'm not going to belabor all of that, but this is the one who was the founder of the church in Colossae, was the pastor, the one who traveled a great distance to go and meet with Paul out of concern for his church, saying there's false teaching, there's errors being taught within the church, this isn't okay, and out of my deep concern for my people, I have traveled to bring this report to you. It says, laboring fervently, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, saying, hey, he's right here with me, he's looking over my shoulder as we're writing this stuff. You guys ever have that happen? Someone's kind of like, text conversations, phone calls, Usually it's my daughter that runs up and yells different things. None of it ever making sense. Right? But this is him saying, oh, hey, say hi for me. Hey, Paphras is with me. Salutes you, saying hey. Says that he's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Why? That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Saying, hey, he's here out of concern for you. He is laboring fervently. He is struggling here. This is, again, back to the word agonizio and agonizing, where you are absolutely struggling. You are wrestling in your prayers. This is not just Epaphras saying, I've got to pray for the people that they would um, come to maturity and passing on. 
This is great, fervent, intensive struggling in prayer. The same way that we see Jesus of sweating blood and all of these different, this is agonizing in prayer of Jacob wrestling in these things. Laboring fervently in his prayers. Why? So that his people would be brought to maturity. The goal of any pastor, any Christian, anyone who has ever engaged in any sort of ministry, the goal should be maturity. It is not enough to say, I just want people to uh, make a commitment of salvation to where they said, I have prayed this at one time, and we say, great, you're set, and we leave. Because all too often, people make professions of faith not actually having any understanding of what the object of their faith is, or what God has required of them, or having any true understanding of what any of these things mean. And then we simply say, well, they've made a profession of faith even though they have no understanding of who Christ is and truly all that he's done or commanded, but eh, they said it one time, so we'll leave him alone. The goal is maturity. To present mature believers to Christ was always Paul's goal. And here we see Epaphras agonizing in prayer that his people would grow and that they would be standing perfect and made complete in all the will of God. This should be the heart of every single minister in any circumstance. Continue into verse 13, it talks about his zeal. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Heropolis. This zeal means to have intense pain. He hurts for you. This is not just Epaphras saying, well, I really would prefer if the people in, in my church that we're ministering to, and there's this false teaching, I would just really prefer if they avoided it if possible. He is absolutely torn up about this. It pains him that these things are going on. That is what causes him to travel such a great distance. He is in agonizing pain because of these situations, which leads him to struggle in his prayer for them. Then we see someone that many of you are aware of, Luke. I'm not going to talk too much about him. The beloved physician. We know that Luke was a physician. Uh, later on would be Paul's personal physician after he went on a missionary journey didn't do as well and said, hey, next time I think I want to bring a doctor with me. Makes some sense. As Paul was dying in 2 Timothy, again, we see that Luke was the only one was with him. This is the same writer of the book of Luke, right? And the book of Acts. Incredibly, just an incredible individual with incredible gifts that God utilized, both as a doctor, but as someone who was so focused on the details and showing forth the historical events. We see this being used throughout. And we see that Luke is also very protective of his uh, reputation as a physician. And in the other Gospels of the woman who suffered uh, much blood, we see Luke, as a detail guy, leaves that part out because he was one of the physicians, right? Uh, she bled a lot. Well, I'm not going to put that down because I could have done better. Just a little hint of irony for you guys. And then we see this last individual here, Demas. We don't know too much about him, but we learn enough from different texts, and again, saving time from flipping back and forth to all of them. But we know that he was with Paul during his two imprisonments. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, listen to this. Do your diligence to come shortly to me, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. We have all of these examples, all of these people, of, of these pictures of, of faithfulness, of, of being servants, 
of being committed to the ministry. All of these things where Demas was for so long, again, with Paul during his imprisonments. But what's some of the last words that he is writing to Timothy? Timothy, I need you to come quickly to me because Demas, whom you know, has forsaken me, loving this world, the present world, more now. This is an incredible change here as he has departed to Thessalonica so enthralled with the things that the world had to offer, forsaking Paul. So we get all through these examples and then we close here with this one of not positive. What is it that has changed? And as you come through all of this, you see the elements here of faithfulness in all circumstance of commitment and all circumstance of being a servant and all circumstance of the focus being maturity. The focus of all of these things and then you get to Demas and it's, oh, he failed because he loved the world more than he loved God. Essentially is what we're looking at here. Caught up in himself. Lacking in being faithful. And for me, it's the, the reminder of the constant need to be humbled by the truth of the gospel. Constantly being humbled by these things. The need for constant remembrance of truth and constant prayer for maturity. Not saying, hey, I've been with Paul for these journeys. I've been with Paul in imprisonment. I don't know if you guys know, but I've done really well for a long time. So I don't need to be praying for constant maturity. I don't need to continue to humble myself coming to the foot of the cross yet again, humbling myself and realizing my state. That you don't need to do any of these things. You can get so caught up in saying, I've done this for a while, I'm in good shape. Because this is the need for maturity so that you're not tossed to and fro as the winds may come. We see that in Ephesians. It is so critical that we're always reminding ourselves of what is true. We could say, well, I've been doing this for 50 years. I'm pretty well grounded. That's great. Keep digging. Keep working. Keep, keep praying for maturity. Keep asking others to be praying for you the same. This was a man who ministered with Paul for many, many years. And yet, even in the end for him, he loved the present world and has departed to Thessalonica. And imagine Paul's response to this. A person that he had ministered with, that he has known and he has loved, should have known better. All of this context wrapped up in this relationship, but the reminder that even so, man is still man. This is why we don't look at examples of Demas, of Epaphras, of Luke, of Onesimus, of Aristarchus, or Tychicus. Pick anybody that you look at and say, this is the example I want to follow. Even David, did David have some good things that he did? Absolutely, he's not my example. That shouldn't be your example. These are still fallen men who do fallen things. This is why it should not come as a surprise when, when sinful man does something sinful. This is why it's not, man, I want to model my life after Demas. It's, man, Demas, like, you, you have forgotten who God was. You forgot who Christ was. You have forgotten all of these things. That's why at the beginning I prefaced all of this with, don't look at these individuals, look at the characteristics of Christ throughout it. Then we get to the last couple of verses very, very quickly. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Again, this community of churches here in the Lycus Valley was to be shared. They were to toss, maybe not toss, you don't throw things in church, to pass very calmly these letters from church to church, to rotate it throughout so that all of them would know the truth. They would all share in these things. They would all have the common understanding. Why? Because these truths, whether it's the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, the Philippian church, 
church in Glenwood Springs, the church in Rifle, wherever the case is going to be, look at these truths that are presented. Christ is preeminent. You are complete in Him. Because of those things, now walk in such a way that reflects that truth. And now, let your speech always be seasoned with salt for outsiders. Continue in prayer. All of these truths are entirely applicable, whether it's the church here in Colossae or the church right here that we're sitting in in Glenwood Springs. This is not just a, well, that was just for that church. Absolutely not. These letters are to be read among the neighboring churches, passed from one to the next. Verse 17, And say to our Archippus, Take heed to the ministry that thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. I always think this is kind of funny, because it's kind of like, maybe Paul's about to wrap it up, he's going to finish everything, and it's like, oh yeah, and by the way, tell this guy to actually like, fulfill the ministry he's been given. That's kind of the way that I've looked at it a little bit. It's like, make sure that he remembers he has been given a ministry from the Lord. Encourage him to fulfill it. Verse 18, closing verse. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. This closing salutation by Paul's own hand, signing it as it would be written, uh, giving the stamp and, and the credibility there. So all the way throughout this book of Colossians, we see so many of these truths, all of it showing from the very beginning, this is who Christ is. This is who you are in Christ. Because of who you are in Christ now, this is how we live. And in four, continue in prayer. Pray for boldness to speak to outsiders so that they too would know these truths from chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's the whole book of Colossians. Christ is preeminent. He, he is foremost. He is everything. He is the hope of glory. We are to be rooted in Him. We are to live as He lived as we receive His righteousness for our sinfulness. That's the beauty of salvation. And in case we didn't understand it well enough in the abstract, chapter 4 are the pictures. These are individuals that are going to reflect this because of who they are in Christ. And these people are only able to live in such a way showing faithfulness, commitment, service because they are in Christ. Who is faithful? Who is the servant? is each and every one of those things. I hope you guys are enjoying Colossians. It's done. Sorry. If you leave with anything, leave with the understanding that everything that we do is all because of Christ. He is preeminent me. He is absolute first. Nothing else comes close. Anyone who ever tells you anything different, cast it out. That's what we're doing here in Colossians. Christ is first and foremost. He is the everything. He is the reason for our salvation, not us. He is the one who has saved us, raised from death into life. And as Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So now, because you have received Christ, live with that as your perspective. Set your eyes on him as you live. Incredible, incredible truth. Let's pray.